Good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name is Tom Barrett. I'm one of the ministers here at All Saints. I'm going to be unpacking those Bible readings for us. Uh, if you're with us for the first time, welcome. It's wonderful to have you here. We're having one of those days at All Saints today. Uh, Mick, thank you for rolling with it. Um, I've been doing my headless chicken routine since I arrived, trying to fix things unsuccessfully. Uh, so why don't we pray uh, and put ourselves under the, the rule of our Father God, who is never overcome by things. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for being bigger than us. Thank you that nothing takes you by surprise. Thank you that all our times are in your hands. And thank you for speaking. Thank you for the scriptures and the chance to dig into them together this morning. Please work in us by your Holy Spirit so that we love Jesus more. In his name we pray. Amen. I reckon one of the most widespread human longings is for a permanent home. A place to settle down, a place to belong. It's this longing which undergirds the classic Australian dream of purchasing a quarter acre block. Economists will tell you that buying real estate is not always the best financial move, but people are driven by more than economics, aren't they? People are driven by a longing for a place to settle. Many people don't get to experience a permanent home in this life. Many can't afford to buy property in a city like Sydney. Many don't manage to find long-term rental accommodation. And many people around the world can't even find a country to settle in. And we'll be hearing a bit about refugee ministry later on today. Now, a lucky few do manage to acquire what you might call a permanent residence. They get the title deed, they pay off the mortgage, they raise the family. But it's not really permanent, is it? It doesn't last forever. The kids grow up and move out. Your health declines. You may or may not get to take your last breath in the house that you purchased, but one thing is certain, you're not going to live there forever. We long for a place to call home and we long for a home that is permanent. But nothing we experience in this life quite meets that desire. Now, the last few weeks at church, we've been looking at the book of Numbers and we've journeyed with the Israelites through the wilderness on the way to the homeland that God has promised them. It's a journey which has taken much longer than expected. Two weeks ago, we looked at the sad incident in the middle of the book of Numbers where 12 spies were sent in to have a look at the promised land. And they came back and they said, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is the land is wonderful The bad news, said 10 of the 12 spies, is we have zero chance of settling there. The people in there, you should see them. There's no way we can do it. Forget about it. And at that point, Israel panicked. They refused to go into the land that God's leading them into. They make plans to take themselves back to slavery in Egypt. And this disastrous failure of trust came with a devastating consequence. Back then, the Lord told Moses he's going to destroy this nation. It's going to be game over for Israel. But Moses pleaded for them. 
He said, Lord, you are slow to anger, abounding in love. For the sake of your own reputation, forgive these people. And the Lord heard him. The Lord responded to Moses and said, okay, I have forgiven them. But this generation who saw all the wonders I did when I brought them out of Egypt, none of this generation will enter the promised land. They will wander in the desert for 40 years. They'll die in the desert. And their children, the next generation, those are the ones who can enter the land of milk and honey. Now, when we looked at this a few weeks ago, I wonder if that made you raise your eyebrows. When God said, I have forgiven them, but I'm not going to let them enter the promised land. I have forgiven them, but they're going to wander the desert and die here after 40 years. We might think, is that actually any better than being destroyed altogether? What kind of forgiveness is that? None of those ancient Israelites would have been saying, oh, well, at least I've got to go to heaven when I die. That just wasn't how they thought. But here's the thing. The fact that their children would get to enter the land, that was a big deal. That was much better than the whole nation being destroyed. Because the continuation of the family line, that's what really matters to these people. That's how they thought of eternity. Have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to carry your name into the future. That was their hope. Now, way back at the beginning of Numbers, we had a census of that first generation who came out of Egypt. And in the last section of the book that we're looking at today, there's a second census taken 40 years later, a census of the next generation. And I had a beautiful slide to show you where someone on the internet put this all into a spreadsheet and looked at the percentage increase and decrease in all the different tribes. Uh, Some people have too much time on their hands, really. Uh, You'll have to look that up for yourselves. The main point is that after 40 years, the nation as a whole is pretty much the same. But this second census is a bit different to the first one. It's not just to work out how big the army is. There's another reason. It comes at the end of chapter 36, where the Lord says to Moses, this land is to be allotted to them as an inheritance based on the number of names. What each group inherits will be according to the names for its ancestral tribe. This census is of the generation that's going to have their family name stamped on a region in the promised land. There's a region for each of the 12 tribes and within each tribal region will be a parcel of land for each family group. The Exodus generation have died in the desert, but their family name will live on as their offspring settle into the promised land. The name of each family will live on Except for one. Except for one. Because in the middle of the second census, there's this passing comment. Chapter 26, verse 33. Zelophehad, son of Hepha, had no sons. He had only daughters. This is a real issue because in that time and culture, property ownership and property inheritance was a male-only affair. Daughters were given large dowries when they got married. Sons inherited the family land. So there's a patch of land in Canaan with Zelophehad's name on it. 
Zelophehad himself has died and now there's nobody who can take up that patch of land on his behalf. It looks like Zelophehad is going to get destroyed after all. The Lord's mercy and forgiveness is not going to apply to this family. Until his daughters step up. We're told their names repeatedly. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka and Terza. These five women really are the heroes of this part of the Bible. Now, our first reading today was from Numbers 27. Why don't you open that up, which is on page 232 of Church Bibles. Let's have a look together at Numbers 27. In this chapter, we heard these five women stepping up courageously, pushing for the rules to be changed. And it's easy for us modern people to go, yeah, preach it, sister. Women's rights, property for women, voting for women, equal pay for women. And those are all good things. But they're not really what this story is about. Because these women are not primarily concerned for themselves, but for their tribe, for their father's name. Look at verse 4 where the five sisters say, why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. It wasn't really about material benefits. In a context where basically everyone got married, these daughters of Zelophehad would have married into families that got property. They would still have got to enjoy living in the land that the Lord provided. It wasn't about whether Zelophehad's daughters would be able to make ends meet. It was about their family name. And it's about whether their father, who's now dead, inherits what God promised him. It's a gutsy thing that these women do. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka and Terza approach the senior leadership of Israel at the entrance to the tabernacle. It's like walking into the White House to make their case. And they argue that the conventional rules about property inheritance are an obstacle to God's promises being fulfilled. What's Moses to do? He's got actually no existing law from the Lord that covers this scenario. There's no precedent to draw on. And so verse 5 says he brought their case before the Lord. This is something that really only Moses could do. And the Lord gave him an answer. Verse 7, the Lord says, What Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right You must certainly give them property as an inheritance amongst their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. And in fact, the Lord says, this should be a permanent rule. Anytime a man dies without sons, you should give his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, to a near relative, so that the family name remains in the land. Because God's plan is that this land is going to be a permanent home for all his people. God's intention was that each of the family groups would put down roots on their own patch permanently. We can see this in some of the laws that God had given previously. Uh, Back in Leviticus 25, there's a law about what's called the year of jubilee. Uh, I won't read out the details, but it describes a situation where someone falls on hard times financially 
And so they sell off part of their family land to raise money. Selling off the family land was always a temporary situation. The original owner always had the right to come and buy it back. And even if they didn't exercise that right, every 49 years was a year of jubilee, which is like a reset. All property ownership would reset back to its original allocation every 49 years. Anyone who's had to sell off their land gets to take it back again. Another sign that God was preparing a permanent home for his people. Now, it's concern for this permanent arrangement that leads to some pushback on the new rule that Zelophehad's daughters have achieved. Flip over to Numbers chapter 36. Numbers 36 is on page 247. Now, Zelophehad and his daughters came from the clan of Gilead within the tribe of Manasseh. And some of the other family heads from Gilead come to Moses because they've heard about this new deal where women with no brothers can inherit the family property, and they've got some concerns. Now, as modern readers, we are instantly suspicious of these blokes, aren't we? They've seen some progress in women's rights, and we assume that they are reactionary conservatives trying to push back and preserve male privilege. But actually, that would be a mistake. These guys actually have very similar concerns to the daughters of Zelophehad. Mala, Terza, Hogla, Milka, and Noah were concerned about whether God's promise would be properly fulfilled. And these other men from Gilead are also concerned about whether God's promise will be properly fulfilled. Look at chapter 36, verse 3. The men say, suppose these women marry men from other Israelite tribes. Then their inheritance will be taken from our ancestral inheritance and added to that of the tribe they marry into. And so part of the inheritance allotted to us, the clan of Gilead, will be added to that of the other tribe they marry into. And so part of the inheritance allotted to us Gileadites will be taken away. And they point out that the year of Jubilee won't help. The year of Jubilee is about land that's been sold, not land that's been inherited. And so they're concerned that bits of their land will be lost to their tribe forever. You might think this sounds a bit self-interested. You know, if you give land rights to ladies, then the sky will fall in. But look at the Lord's response. In verse 5, Moses relays what the Lord says. What the tribe of the descendants of Joseph are saying is right. They're actually making a fair point about God's intentions for the land. In verse 7, the Lord says through Moses, No inheritance since Israel is to pass from one tribe to another, for every Israelite shall keep the tribal inheritance of their ancestors. As we keep seeing, God's plan for his people is for each of them to have a permanent home. So the solution here is that Zelophehad's daughters and other women who inherit property are given a special responsibility. They have to marry within their tribal clan so the property stays within the clan it was given to. And in verse 10, Mala, Terza, Hogla, Milka and Noah willingly accept this responsibility. They do as the Lord commanded and they marry within their clan. This isn't a battle for and against women's rights. 
In both these chapters, actually, we have people speaking up because they're concerned about the fulfilment of God's promise. His promise of a permanent home for his people. And so this is where the whole book of Numbers ends. These two episodes with Zelophehad's daughters form a frame around the final section of the book. This section is all about the new generation. And you know what? This generation are doing pretty well. The previous generation had said in despair, we can never take possession of that land. But this new generation are saying, when we take possession of this land. And they're thinking about the details of what it'll be like when they get there. They're thinking ahead. They're acting like God is going to keep his promise. The fact is the land of Canaan at this point is still occupied by fierce pagan worshipping people who'll put up a fight. But the daughters of Zelophehad and the others in their generation assume that God will get them there in the end. They're focused on the permanent home that will be theirs. So there are some things for us to learn from Zelophehad's daughters. None of us here are ancient Israelites looking to inherit a patch of land in the Middle East. But if you're a Christian believer, God has promised you an inheritance. He has promised you a permanent home. 1 Peter chapter 1 says that in his great mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. 2 Peter chapter 3 says, in keeping with God's promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Our inheritance is not a patch of land in the Middle East, but neither is it floating on a cloud in the sky. If you're a Christian believer, your permanent home is a renewed universe. Your permanent home is when Jesus comes again in glory and God's kingdom invades this world and drives out all evil, all decay, all darkness and all tears. If you've decided to follow Jesus, there is a patch of that new world with your name on it. Like Mala, Terza, Hogla, Milka and Noah. We have a permanent home that is promised, but not yet possessed. We look ahead to it. And so we can learn from their example of faith. We can learn from their example of focusing on the permanent home that lies ahead. Firstly, we can notice that the daughters of Zelophehad spoke up And their speaking up was not an act of selfishness, but an act of active faith. If they believed that the Lord didn't care about keeping his promise, then they would have stayed silent. But it was on the conviction that God does care that they'd spoken up about a situation that seemed to obstruct God's promises. We likewise should speak up and hold God to his promises. We have the great privilege of being able to speak to God directly. 
We can pray and say, Lord, you've promised to get me through this life. But I'm about to give up hope. I need you to intervene. We can pray and say, Lord, I know that you've said you want people to repent and be saved, but so many are not being reached by the gospel. Do something. Zelophehad's daughters show us that faith doesn't mean blindly accepting the status quo, but often challenging it and calling out to God. The writer Jerry Bridges puts it well when he says, Trust is not a passive state of mind. It is a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold of the promises of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. So that's the first lesson about faith that we can take from Mala, Terza, Hogla, Milka and Noah. There's a second lesson which is this. Trusting God includes playing our part in the playing out of his promises, accepting the responsibilities that he gives us. These five sisters were willing to limit their choice of husband for the sake of preserving the family land inheritance. They accepted that responsibility, that constraint. And there are parallels for us. There are lots and lots of choices we can make about our money. But God calls us to accept a constraint, to make sure that we're generous to gospel work. This is for your own benefit as much as others, because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. There are lots of choices we can make about spending our time. But God calls us to make sure we prioritise quality time with his people around his word in various different formats, so that we can all persevere to that eternal inheritance. And if you're someone who's looking for a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, there might be plenty of nice people out there, but God calls you to accept a constraint, to find someone who also follows Jesus, who will help you on the journey to your permanent home. Mala, Terza, Hogla, Milka and Noah show us that trusting God includes accepting responsibilities he gives us. But as we start to wrap up, I want to point beyond what to do and I want these daughters of Zelophehad to point us to what's been done for us. Because it's one thing for us all to go home today determined to be like Zelophehad's daughters. But it's actually much more powerful to go home realising how much that you are like Zelophehad himself. If you're a Christian, you're promised a permanent home in the world to come. But unless Jesus returns in your lifetime, you and I will die in this wilderness. Who will speak up and make sure that we don't miss out on our inheritance? Jesus does. He's like Zelophehad's daughters, but better. He is determined that your name will not be forgotten, even if you're dead and buried. Like Zelophehad's daughters, but better, Jesus has entered now into the new creation and he's claiming part of it on your behalf. 
Like Zelophehad's daughters, but much, much better, Jesus will in fact raise you from death so you can enjoy your permanent home yourself for eternity. Just before his death and resurrection, Jesus told his disciples, I am going away to prepare a place for you. Hebrews 9 says, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It's a deeper and deeper appreciation of what Jesus has done for us, which will move us to the kind of active trust that Salafa has daughters illustrate. Everybody wants a permanent home. And if your trust is in Jesus, you have a home that is truly permanent, an eternal inheritance. It's a home that no legal issue or recession or retrenchment or illness or death will ever take away from you. It's a home where God himself dwells with his people. It's a home that we haven't reached yet. But Jesus is standing up to make sure that you don't get left out. He will bring you safely to enter and to enjoy that permanent home forever.